It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia on deck here to discuss last weekend's UFC Fight Night, Lewis versus Olenek, and we're going to discuss UFC 252. We've got a big one coming up this weekend, Nick, where Daniel Cormier goes up against Stipe Miocic for a third and final time, Daniel Cormier's retirement fight, Nikolai. And Allegedly, think, uh, alleged retirement yeah, it's, fight. Yeah, it's safe to say it's his first retirement, Nick, from MMA, and then we'll see how many times he can manage to come back and have a Uriah Faber moment. How are you, buddy? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm... I'm I'm filled with pride, my friend Stanislav. I'm filled with pride because, you know, they say you win the belt, <laughs> it's a good thing, but you're not really the champ until you defend the belt. And on this last card, I defended the belt. It you was did. like it was like uh, Faber versus Brown two, or um, what's another another great example of a defense. Oh, you mean in that that I broke my hand and I had to fight through it and, and use elbows? <laughs> I can't. Ah. You, you made a lot of you made a lot of excuses. Yeah, um, <laughs> that uh, or like when Conor McGregor. Oh wait, Conor McGregor's never defended a title. No. Um, <laughs> man, all right. Man yeah. Has fought has fought for titles in divisions that he's never competed in outside of that title fight. So yeah, it felt it. It felt you know. I listen, man. I've been nipping at your heels for uh, all summer and even some of the spring. And um, put a little streak together now. It feels good. It feels good to, if someone were to say, from the period between April and August, who was the superior analyst? And anyone would look at the results and say, well, clearly it's Nick Braccia. That's, so I guess that's one let's. Way to look uh, at Nick. I am proud of you, buddy. I really am. Wait, I, I wait, think... wait. Here comes here comes Stan doing the all time record stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Everyone's heard it. Sorry. Go ahead. What were you gonna? Were we... <laughs> I've got twice the wins you do. I knew more. it. But I that's not it. the point. The point is that recently, Nick. Seriously, the point is recently you have been kicking ass, dude. It's been extremely competitive, and being competitive with me is something to be proud of. Seriously, dude. Uh, good picks. <laughs> two solid events Thanks. for you now in a row. This is UFC 252. This is the big leagues, Nick. If you get a third one, the momentum is squarely on you. And then I have a lot of kind of an uphill climb to, to work with here. We started the podcast uh, a year and change ago where you were in the lead for the first couple of months. And then I had to kind of fight my way back. And uh, yeah, Nick, now this is your turn. And I'm kind of excited about it. I'm excited for this to be just back and forth. I mean, you've got two in a row, my friend. This is, this is starting to feel... Me. I'm starting right, to feel a little bit like Chris Weidman, Nick, and I'm hoping I'm hoping uh, that I have one of those Omar Ahmedov performances left in me. Maybe a third round takedown will seal oh, it for me. Oh, what do you think? You must. If you, <laughs> I when when you said you feel like Weidman, I got tired for you. I was just like, <laughs> no joke, man. Let's let's quickly talk about Lewis versus Olenek. It was an entertaining card. The um, the main event went largely how we thought it would. Um. I picked. Did we both pick Lewis? I picked Lewis. Did you pick Olenek? Nick, I made the mistake of picking Olenek. And I know exactly where I made the mistake. You calculated exactly correctly, and I did not. It's that simple. Well, it w let's put it this way, man. It was a, it was a game of inches because I said last week that I wasn't sure what was going to happen. That I, th what, you know, what happened is what I guess push comes to shove. I thought was happened, but I was. Even if, it, you know, well, actually, I had the event locked up by then. I was rooting for Olenek to get the choke. Like, it was so cool. You know, he had gotten tossed. He had gotten thrown to the ground like a sack of potatoes. He, he was, you know, he's he was forty pounds less, and he still put on that amazing scarf choke and had those really cool scrambles. And he's such a, he's just such a cool fighter. He's so interesting to watch. And it's just afterwards, Derek Lewis said, "Yeah, I couldn't breathe at all." And I'm like, well, "Then yeah, how did he... then how did you get out of it if you couldn't breathe at all? Usually, people pass out." I'll tell you how, and and I think part of it, like you calculated exactly correctly. I spoke about how Alexi, um, Alexi is all he needs is one takedown, and he's probably going to finish by a choke. And Derek Lewis gives up literally every other takedown that opponents try on him. And I think one of the bigger things I did not factor in that you talked about and you did factor in to your credit is that 
Lewis is just so much bigger. There was such a strength discrepancy in this matchup. And even if Olenek seemingly had him in a bad position, Lewis was just able to strength his way out because not only Olenek is a strong guy, but he only weighed about 227 pounds in this one, which is a good 35 pounds below Lewis. I'm going to interrupt for a second. I'm going to say Olenek walking in at 227, okay? Because he didn't cut weight to get there. He just weighs 227. He looks in fantastic shape. Most light heavyweights are entering the cage not that far from that. Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? 100%. Plenty of light heavyweights who are 205 or uh, 225 or 230. Um, he's, night, basically, right. he's basically a light heavyweight fighting Lewis, which, we, of course, we've seen Daniel Cormier, who fights at light heavyweight, defeat Lewis, but he's, the you know, a legendary, uh, a legendary level wrestler with remarkable scriting. He's a 265 pound yeah, he heavyweight was. and a 225-pound he, light heavyweight. So yeah, he's kind of both of these guys somehow. He literally can can kind of get into Alexi Olenek's shape and he can get out of shape into Derek Lewis territory. He likes to eat. Kid likes to eat. But yes, Olenek, I mean, that was one it was for, it was a David and Goliath battle and honestly, anybody who watched that fight and thought Olenek came out the loser you know, is it's it's kind of a moral victory. He's just so cool, and he was so close. Olianik looked really good considering he was outside by outsized by such a huge margin. I think a light heavyweight, the guy might have better success. Light heavyweights still kind of suck just as much as heavyweights for the most part, and he likely won't be overpowered. He'll likely be the stronger physical man there, and I think he can do some damage at that weight division. I wouldn't mind seeing him cut down, but let's face it. The man is 43 years old. At this point, he's got somewhere around 75 fights, Nick. He's basically got three times uh, the number of competition that Derek Lewis does. And man, was that scarf choke really close. It's just usually a strong, powerful man move and hard to pull off against a man who's actually more powerful than you, even though it sounds like the boa constrictor was close to doing it. So, yeah, and I'll say, I mean, frankly, with all the lousy heavyweight fights and the, the lack of overall technique at heavyweight, this is all this is all you can ask for from a heavyweight main event agreed. on a TV on a TV card. It was, you know, it was good, good fun. Totally agreed. It was a nice cap off to a great card. And then in that co-main event, that's where we had a little bit of the the weird matchup oh. between two wrestle-focused fighters who really get tired as a fight wears on. Chris Weidman used to be literally by far the best middleweight on the planet when he knocked out Anderson Silva and was able to defend that title a few times before everything went downhill. He went f- one in five in his following six fights. And now two uh and now I'm, I'm sorry what is it two and five now in his last seven after this weird win over Omari Ahmedov Weidman took the first round it was close it was competitive I thought Omari did more damage but Weidman was able to get that top position and I think you know I think saying either guy won that first round is fine with me second round was clearly Ahmedov's he took Weidman down controlled him landed some big shots on the feet and in that third round both guys were exhausted and I think Weidman's corner truly implored him that he needs one takedown. He just needs one takedown, and Omari is probably too tired to get up. And to be honest with you, it would have worked the same way in reverse if Omari was the first to shoot, and if he was able to get that takedown, that probably would have been the fight for him in his favor. So good on Weidman, man. He made the clutch decision, but does he have the conditioning? Does he have the skill? Does he have the speed to compete at the top level of middleweight? Absolutely not. The guy should not be in a hurry to be uh, warning top middleweights that he's back and he's dangerous. Like, that's crazy talk. The man yeah. barely got away with his life here. Barely got away. I think Akhmedov is just a guy who carries too much muscle. Weidman, you know, it's a good thing he has that single leg technique, which I'm sure he's been drilling for 25 years. Yeah. Um, because that, you know, that's that saved him. But the fact of the matter is Chris Weidman looks in the cage like a 36 year old man and there are guys there are older fighters and people who manage to do it longer who knows with what kind of help but since his surgeries i mean i don't know if Wyden was juicing before I, I i really don't know i don't have a strong opinion about that i know that when he was in his late 20s and early 30s he physically looked fantastic i know that despite the fact that he has those losses he has he has won more as many minutes or seconds of each of his fights even the ones that he's lost uh as any fighter ever he's he's won most minutes and most rounds in which he's competed in by far he was winning against rockhold he was winning against romero he was winning against jacare like um 
and then in all those fights he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory but he was a very very capable athlete with with tons of heart i really think when you have a high contact sport lots of injuries serious surgeries on your back on your neck um and aging like he just he looks old and slow and like his punches don't have anything like what they had um when he was when he was fighting you know silva or when he elbowed mark munoz but that's seven, it's seven it was seven years ago i mean he won that he won the title the day my daughter was born she can you know she can read now so that's how long ago um <laughs> you know it's seven years uh over seven years that weidman uh peaked so yeah. he just got old and i i wish it's just like walk away there's no you got nothing you got nothing else to do he seems like a guy who probably saved some money like like there's no there's no fight there's no fights for you at middleweight that aren't going to be a pain in the ass i'm not so sure that he saved money but he is invested at least in the law uh, in the weidman longo school i'm sure he's got a couple of other investments it sounds like he's moving houses right now and i assume it's not to a bigger grander house i assume well i, I mean, bet i, I bet it is he's moved he's he's moving to the carolinas from long island i'll tell you what your dollar goes a lot oh further is that there. really the case he's moving I believe, there officially i believe he's I be, I, they said it didn't sound like the camp he said he it said he was moving his family as I, I if i'm correct or if i intuited uh or rather inferred Man. properly what they said he's going to move close to his brother-in-law and his sister his, his sister of course is married to uh wait a minute his, i'm sorry his Wait, his sister's married to Stephen Thompson's brother. Is that correct? I don't. I I didn't know that. I, oh, it's something uh, like that. You know what? Yeah, th- there is there is something like that. I I think I know what you're talking about. There's something along those lines. Yeah. And he well, he also she trained with. Let me just finish real quick. He trained with he trained with Thompson for this fight, and you could see it in his his dangerous but effective against Omari uh, Akhmedov uh, striking defense, where it was all like karate head movement and trying to pull some like. Joel Gray dodging bullets in uh, in Remo Williams, kind of like you know, no hands up, but using all of his upper body to elude, to evade, to elude strikes. That's not something we've seen from him before. Yeah, I don't know if that's a Stephen Thompson thing, but I will say if you are friends with Stephen Thompson and have trade with him in the past, and your issue is that you take big strikes and you get knocked out, have some time with Stephen Thompson and have him teach you some goddamn defense. So that's a damn good call. Yeah, Weidman seemed a little bit weird about the... Uh, I'm sorry, Lungo seemed a little bit weird about the fact that Weidman went out there to the Carolinas for part of this training camp. And I, I guess I kind of understand why. It sounds like sounds like Weidman's moving. And I don't blame him. He can sell his million-dollar home and buy a half a million dollar home that's probably bigger and grander in, in one of the Carolinas. So it can make a real difference. And, you know, he's still got high level training out there. Fact of the matter is, if I was a fighter, I probably would have been living in Vegas where taxes are super low, living expenses are super low, and the UFC is often holding events. So there, there's some logic to that, if you ask me. But yeah, I mean, Chris Weidman is a fraction of the fighter that he was, uh, whether he won this fight or not. And you talked about the possibility of him retiring. The man would not have retired had he gotten knocked out in this fight, Nick. He just doesn't have that in him. I think it's all he knows. I think he's a guy that's going to have a really, really hard time separating and in about a year, I think the majority of the MMA world is going to try and beg him to stop fighting, and he's probably going to resist. But look, guys like Andre Arlovsky have reinvigorated their careers by beating prospects uh, after getting you know horrible knocks, knockout losses. Guys like Alistair Overeem, this happens at heavyweight. You very rarely see it happen in weight divisions where guys cut weight and weight divisions where speed and reflexes are a bigger factor. So, yeah, I mean, I don't expect anything big from Weidman. I expect that... Uh, Somebody like Marvin Vittori, who's already called him out, will mop the floor with him and build a name off of him. That's essentially what Chris Weidman is in the division for at this point, if you ask me. Darren Stewart, how about a motherfucking guillotine choke, Nikolai? Who saw that coming? The man's never had a submission in his life, but he's really putting his MMA game together, and he was able to outdo Maki Pitolo in the very first round. Physical specimen, uh, very emotional because, you know, his buddy had been murdered uh just a couple of weeks before in the uk stabbed in the uk on his birthday and uh yeah stewart just looked terrific he did everything he did everything uh right in this fight yeah he really did yana kunitskaya uh, took a uh, pretty boring decision over julia stoyarenko the fact of the matter is that julia's dynamic explosive she's dangerous on the floor dangerous on the feet so i you know I, i get it yana being the mature fighter the experienced fighter she couldn't afford to 
give up this win, uh, give up this loss in this situation. She did what she had to do to put the win back on her record. She's now over 500 in the UFC. Good on her, but I don't think that's the kind of game that'll work at the high level. No, that was a that was a that was a 2003 fight. I never want to talk about again. You're not kidding, motherfucking Benil Daryushnik. How about them apples? A first-round spinning back fist knockout. The man is on a streak after taking multiple knockouts. Speaking of fighters who can come back after after looking pretty uh, weak in the chin, the man has come back and looking phenomenal. He's now on a five-fight winning streak. Nick, all I'm sorry, four of those five fights are by finish, two by knockout, two by submission. He's beaten guys like Drew Dober, who's currently streaking. Tiago Moises, who's coming off of a win. Frank Camacho, who isn't all that, I guess. But Jokar Klosen, Scott Holtzman, his last two wins are over. You know, some impressive prospects who've been putting their games together and really kind of making a run from the top. Jokar Close was 11-1 and leading into that loss to Benil Dariush. So Benil Dariush, a sweetheart of a man. Really glad to see him win. He is extremely exciting. He's a killer, be-killed fighter. And man, was it fun to watch him compete here. You know at any point, right, that he can snap a submission he can land a knockout or he can be knocked out heck he's been submitted nick like like he's not a journeyman right but he is so fucking exciting and the possibilities are endless when benil daryush is in there competing so very much looking forward to him going up against a top 10 fighter do you have anyone in mind for him nick i mean the division's still loaded so kev and i want you maybe you want to get somebody off a win so uh, Iaquinta doesn't make sense. Lee doesn't make sense. Cerrone doesn't make sense, even though those are all fights. I, th- I think we can start looking at bigger fights. I don't think these matchmakers are concerned about guys coming off of wins or losses. Yeah, maybe not. Those guys are all. I mean, I'd like. I guess I'd like to see him fight uh, Ally Iaquinta then. Uh, Islam uh, uh, Mak- Makachev. Uh, Makachev could yep. be interesting. If you really wanted to push it, this guy's coming off a loss, but I'd love to see it. Benil Dariush against Paul Felder. Paul, yes, the thing Nick. Is I don't, but I don't know if Paul. I don't know if. Listen, Paul Felder's ranked sixth. I think um, Benil's far down there. I think it's a thrilling fight. Paul Felder's a great commentator. He's he. I don't know that he that that's a fight that Paul Felder comes back for. I think I think there's very specific fights that that he wants, and I don't I don't think he's going to take a fight where a guy's looking to make his name off of him. I think with all due respect to Paul Felder, outside of him being a good analyst, a good play-by-play, or I don't know, I guess he's a color commentator. I mean, he's not that big of a fucking deal, dude. You're not a former champ. You don't get to like declare that you're coming back and giving someone the honor of fighting you. Paul Felder was never more than a contender, and even calling him a contender, I think, is kind. Um, the man can fight a fucking Benil Daryush. And by the way, it's a winnable fight for Felder, even though it's dangerous. I get that. But it's against a super exciting fighter. I think there's some potential there. I don't know that Paul Felder's in like this Damian Maya Anderson Silva territory where he gets to pick his matchups because he's accomplished so much. He's great behind the mic, but let's slow down. Stan, I don't think that's the reason. I think it's that he understands that he's not that a, Paul Felder's not going to get a title fight. I don't think he had no. I think he understands that he doesn't have it in him either by age or by ability to really break through in the top five. So he's, I right. think he's looking for fun fights with marketable names because he himself is a marketable name. I think he's as under understands that he's up for personal challenges and willing to be an attraction fighter. I, I read it as though he's taken himself out of contention. And that that's really what I, what I mean when a, a fight with Darius, a fighter who's surging, who certainly wants to be in the mix there. I just think that, that their stories don't align. You know, I could see that's, that. That's, re- that's really what I think. It, what I think it is. I think realistic um, for, for Paul Felder, the biggest fight he can possibly ask for, and for it to be realistic right now, is against Tony Ferguson. I think that's a guy that you know he could potentially beat, probably not, but he's a guy with a real name. He's a guy that's in the literal top three or four in the division. That you know he has a lot to gain, not a whole lot to lose per se if he loses. But yeah, if he's not willing to fight guys like Dariush, I think Tony Ferguson's probably his only kind of ideal I, matchup. I, I think Ferguson's too elite. I think I think a fight against Cerrone is what is more like what is interesting. For I mean, Felder. that'll be a gift for Felder, but sure, I get like anybody wants to fight Cerrone. He's a name who sucks at this point. He can't take a shot. Uh, like like I guess like, yeah. I mean, look, Cerrone's willing to fight anyone, so I guess that would probably be a realistic matchup, especially if Cerrone can pick up a victory. I believe that he's scheduled to fight in the next month. They're so old, I can't remember who. 
uh, he is scheduled to compete against. So, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly a lot of potential here for Benil Darius. Looking forward to seeing him compete. Tim Means comes back and looks good against Loriano Staropoli. He just, uh, I got uh, he this did, one wrong. Holy cow. Yeah, and, and I did too, Nick. I think a lot of people kind of gave in on Tim Means. If it was before his last fight, he would have been a decent-sized favorite over Staropoli. But, man, given his last couple of performances, it also sounds like he's been really going through some serious stuff in life. And I think he's a guy that probably is constantly in and out of serious drama and you know it showed in some of those performances but he looked like he put it all together in this one Kevin Holland looks spectacular Nick picked apart Joaquin Buckley Buckley was you know honestly a dangerous puncher he Kevin Holland didn't even need the takedown he's like I'm starting to figure out his style now I've had a lot of trouble doing that now that I'm that I've watched him compete against someone who's not gonna sloppily grapple with him for three rounds um it's I'm starting to figure out his style a little bit he goes for the I don't know if you remember from pro wrestling the Luthez press Nick where you know your your opponent's kind of running at you and you just literally jump up and Stone Cold Steve Austin was known for this you jump up and your midsection hits his face and then you both drop you on top of him kind of straddling him and then kind of mounting him and then you go for uh for, for those strikes that's kind of what kevin holland goes for when it comes to takedowns the weirdest fucking thing against the guy with a serious overhand kevin holland just likes to walk straight in toward his opponents the weirdest fucking thing but he is skilled he is fast he's explosive he's extremely experienced and i'm glad he's able to finally show his striking in these last two fights two knockouts in a row i look forward to seeing that guy compete and to be honest i haven't looked forward to seeing him seeing him compete in a while. Nazar Hakpras came through looking spectacular. Fucked up Alex Munoz. And Alex Munoz has an insane amount of heart. The guy never gave in, never tried to look for a way out where a lot of guys taking that level of punishment would have. It's a shame to see a guy in his seventh pro fight taking that kind of ravaging, especially for a prospect. Yeah, it was also the, one thing I'll, the only thing I'll add here, which is just a bit of color. I think it's funny how Munoz, a uh, team alpha male fighter, that he actually looks like like Faber, Mendez, and Dillashaw, like all all matched all into the same face. Yeah, right. He does. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was. A, I mean, uh, Nazareth just pieced him apart. Super fast hands. He's got the Gastelum look and the gas Gastelum hand speed. Andrew Sanchez, Wellington Terman, man, St- styled on Wellington Terman, vicious KO, fast hand, fast, fast, fast hand speed. Um, so he stopped the Terman train uh, a little bit there. Uh, it's Justin a shame. James. I love Terman, man. That, yeah, that one I know, hurts. I know. Um, Justin Janes came on strong again, looking to replicate uh, his late his last six or early, so yeah, fights, yeah, early victory um, in his last UFC fight, and he and he landed. He he knocked. He he kind of put uh, Gavin Tucker on his on his Tuckus, um, but Tucker, a very well-rounded fighter with a terrific gas tank, um, out outlasted him and put him away via choke. Really, really exciting fight. Yeah, I spoke about how Tucker is more technical. He's a, a Henzo Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt on the ground. He's super smooth on the feet. I just question his heart and determination, and he literally showed exactly that. Now, it helped that Justin James hasn't been to the second round in many years and had no gas tank to, to actually compete there, but Gavin survived that early storm and looked really, really good late. Yeah, one quick thing about the next fight. In this card, I didn't say anything about Kevin Hunt. Like Joaquin Buckley, you know, credit to the guy for taking the fight. He did not look like a UFC caliber fight to me, and maybe that's why Holland looks so good. Um, I haven't seen guys with that body shape at that weight class in a long, in a long, long time. I just was like this. I was, I was just kind of surprised. I actually think he's a decent fighter, believe it or not. He's going to look decent in the UFC. Maybe, but I thought he, he and Peter Bar- Barrett coming, you know, just not quite at the level. Now that is not a UFC level fighter. Yusuf Salal is totally styled. Treated yeah. him like a. You know, treated him like a sparring partner or grappling dummy for the majority of the fight after landing a or a heavy bag. Landed an amazing uh, spinning heel kick that put him on his butt. Barrett's tough. Boston tough. We heard, I mean, all the up to the fight, like, wasn't so much about how Zalal was a prospect, but about how, like, Barrett's a boston guy which is silly by the way barrett was three and three going into this fight like he's i said it i said it in our last show he's not ufc caliber that's why i recommended investing into use of Zalal in the betting uh window and he he's not he's not even close to ufc caliber use of is very talented don't get me wrong but Yusuf will have close fights with you know up and comers in the ufc this was a complete shellacking so glad to see Yusuf looking good he's now three and oh in the ufc unfortunately the finish has eluded him yeah, Zalal, if he can get some finishes, he's going to get put on that star fast track just because he's got he's got remarkable charisma. Uh, yes, remarkable sir. charisma. He's from, you know, he's from Morocco. 
don't know if he was born in Morocco, but just I think he's going to be super marketable, super marketable international fighter with an exciting style and an effervescent personality. Yeah, agreed. He was uh, born in Casablanca, Morocco. Of all the gin joints, Stan. And the the opening fight, Erwin <laughs> uh, Rivera against Ali Al Qaisi was fucking exciting. It was really good. Yeah, really good opener. Could have gone either way. I had Rivera, uh, but I wasn't sure. Like I was, I I really thought because I had picked Rivera, and I I was I thought halfway through this fight that I was uh, in for a slow start to the evening. Um, but he pulled it out with a. With I actually a, thought Rivera looked pretty good in that one. I, I thought that was a good pick on your part, and we we both uh, thought that he would win. But I thought I thought he did pretty well. I don't know that it deserved to be a split decision. Oh, I thought. Well, I thought that the second could have gone to Ali Al Qaisi, and that the first was and that. the first was Rivera, but it was close, and the third was all Rivera. So he, it, uh, he turned a corner. Um, when he hit, he, he turned a corner when he hit that a me. He hit that, a really really great flying knee. Let's take a break, Nick. Let's get into it. I need to get my wins back. You're on a two-fight event streak, Nick, and we've got to do something about this. We're at 12 event wins for me, six event wins for you. I, like It was literally just yesterday, it seems like, when we were like 11 and 3 or something like that. So you are coming back, my friend. Let's take a break. We're going to come back and give you guys our UFC 252 picks and breakdown. This is for the dozens and dozens of our listeners. On the MMA Geek C-Level podcast channel on YouTube, I posted a really detailed breakdown of the Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic matchup. There's a lot of footage in there. There's examples of exactly what I'm talking about. You have statistics. You have scorecards for prior fights. Check it out, please. Very curious to get some feedback. Also, if you like the video, hit the like button and consider subscribing to the channel. Thanks. Back on the MMA Geek C-Level Podcast to give you guys our draft picks for this coming UFC event, UFC 252, where Stipe Miocic, the heavyweight champion, arguably the best of all time in heavyweight when it comes to at least UFC accomplishments, faces off with Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier's retirement bout, or at least his first retirement bout, pretty excited about this, Nikolai. I believe you have the first pick this time, Nick, which, man, that puts me puts me on the defensive, but I'm ready, bud. Go well, for we'll it. We'll see. There's a couple of potential first picks there. I'm curious to see what you have, but I'm going to go with, listen, the, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different result, uh, in which case I'm going to start with Magomed uh, Akaliev to knock out uh, Ian, Ian uh, Kutalaba. Um, so we've got a you know Russian fighter, formerly of Team Akhmat. Uh, I think he's with a new team now, no longer affiliated, I guess, with the Grozny crew um, against the Moldavian. And this was a, I, you know, people made a big deal about this KO when it when it happened. I didn't think it was the worst I'd ever seen. I think I think this <laughs> this next one's gonna. I think we're basically gonna experience a replay of of the first fight i just think he's got sick sick power uh especially early and that we're gonna get a replay yeah and Kalaev is uh, two inches taller but same reach give or take he's a southpaw last time i Kalaev heard him on the feet he landed eight hard fast strikes in about 30 seconds so there's no reason to honestly assume that uh, Ian Kutilaba was pretending to be hurt besides Bisping kind of throwing that theory out there. I think Ankalaev was faster. He hurt him to the body. He hurt him to the head. He landed just about everything he wanted, and he's going to presumably do the same thing here. Look, Kutilaba has surprisingly good Greco-Roman wrestling. He could get takedowns. He could go for decision, but then he gets tired as the fight goes on. He has serious explosive power, so he could catch him too, but I don't necessarily like his chances. I think Ankalaev is going to make this wrong into a right and uh, and clear cut the win. Although he did get credit for the victory last time, so to be fair, he's going to end up walking with two, uh, walking away with two wins over Kutilaba here. Uh, I'm on the same page with you, and this would have been my first pick as well. My first pick, Nick, is going to be Herbert Burns to beat Daniel. Ah, Pineda. that was my second pick. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think we're very much on the on the same page here. Pineda actually had seven UFC fights from 2012 to 2014. He had a three and four record back then, and then since then he's gone ten and two, including multiple fights in Bellator and PFL. So you know, a fairly decent level of competition. As a matter of fact, Nick Pineda's uh, last finish win in PFL was over one of Herbert Burns' opponents that beat him. So there is some MMA math here that might suggest that Pineda has a good shot. But I like Herbert Burns to get the submission. Look, Pineda had his last two wins taken away in the PFL because he popped for steroids. I assume he's off the juice I now. I saw that. I it was saw the, that, with yeah. the 
And, and by the way, can I just quickly say, he got six months, Nick, for having elevated levels of testosterone, apparently because he like admitted to it and owned up to it. This is the same commission that gave Nick Diaz five years for a marijuana charge, Nick. Makes no sense. It's fucking unbelievable, like the, the, the bureaucracy there, and, and it's just corruption and funny business all over the place. But I do like Herbert Burns to to make some of those wrongs right. I, I like him to get the finish here in the first round. One and one in the UFC, two finishes, one by knockout, one by submission. I like him to get a second submission here. Um, Yeah, I uh, totally with you. I think this is a... This is as close as you get to a prospect fight, and we're seeing more of those. I think because as a po- like you can see, you can see a little bit more clearly um, the UFC doing some matchup math or filling in holes with guys who either have fights left on their contract, maybe live in Vegas, what have you. Um, but there's a there's a few more every card now. It seems there's a couple more gimme fights. I don't want to say can you know can fights, but uh, ones where you're like, and eh, this guy seems to be on a lower level. It's like a dude you know a dude who hasn't had a ton of success against a guy who's surging. Um, Essentially, yeah. Although again, Pineda's look really good lately, especially if you don't take away those wins for the yeah, steroid. I, I take them away because I'm a good human. Uh, number three. <laughs> Ah, this is it already. This, the card starts to get a little bit tricky to pick here, and I'm not sure if this is the right move. But I'm going to pick Jim Miller to get another first. I think he's going to get a first round submission victory of uh, Vince Pichel. I don't. I think. Uh, I think Miller is great all around. I think he's a really good grappler. We've seen Pichel have problems uh, previously with uh, with guys who are terrific grapplers. I just think. Uh, I think the Jim Miller victory tour continues. Yeah, Miller is two inches shorter, but the younger man in this matchup, believe it or not. That's it's like incredible. Flabbergasting that that is the case. I know he's 36 to Pichel's 37. Miller, however, has more craft. He's a lot more experienced, but he also has way more miles. He's got 47 pro fights to Pichel's 14. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, while Pichel is a brown belt. Both faced and beat Roosevelt Roberts, actually. They're the only two guys to give that man a loss. Pichel gets an average of four takedowns per 15 minutes, which is actually pretty impressive. But he has a takedown defense rate of 22%. In fact, he gave up nine takedowns in his last two fights. Granted, one of them was against Gregor Gillespie. Miller can do a lot with the takedown in the first round, judging by his last five fights. Miller's a strong starter, and, and kind of fades late, whereas Pichel is a slow starter who gets stronger late. So if Pichel can get through the first round, he can very well win this fight. It is a toss-up, but uh, I just like Miller having that first-round submission prowess. He's a monster in that first round. He just kind of starts dying down after that, and I'm not sure that Pichel can consistently get takedowns and pressure him effectively, uh, even if Miller does uh, have to come out of that first round. So I'm on the same page with you, but this was much further down my list. Okay. My next pick is going to be Sean O'Malley uh, to beat Marlon Vera. Yep. This is the co-main event, Sean O'Malley getting, you know, a, a big spotlight here by the UFC. He's clearly a star. From what I understand, he recently started uh, selling a T-shirt or something, made 20 grand in, in a couple of days and decided he's starting his own uh, clothing line. Good on him, dude. The guy is clearly on everyone's minds. He's uh, at the tip of everyone's tongue. So looking forward to seeing him compete here. O'Malley is only two years younger at 25 than is Marlon Vera, who Marlon, I think, kind of strikes me at least as a guy in his 30s for some reason he's got a three inch height and 1.5 inch reach advantage Vera's a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt while o'malley is only a purple belt uh 22 fights for vera to 12 for o'malley so there's a lot of reason to think that vera has a really solid chance here uh o'malley lands twice as many strikes per minute and takes less strikes than does vera and i think that'll make a difference o'malley lands about seven per minute rivera about three and a half O'Malley's accuracy is almost at 60%, which is incredibly impressive for a non-wrestler. If you're on top of a guy, you can have high accuracy, right, with those pitter-patter shots. But if you're standing across from the octagon and you have a 60% land rate, that's unbelievable, right? He absorbs less strikes, like I said, than does Vera. His defense is 66% to Vera's 52%, and his strike differential is significantly better than Vera's. In other words, the number of strikes he lands versus takes. So I like him. He's got more takedowns per 15 minutes, believe it or not, than does Vera. His takedown accuracy is higher than Vera's. Uh, Their takedown defense is pretty similar. Um, 
O'Malley starts very strong and very starts very slow. When Varys faced off with someone with the height and speed, but kind of a fraction of the skill of O'Malley, he lost the first round to Andre Ewell. And Andre Ewell is the kind of guy who will fall apart after that first round no matter how it goes. If Varys gets through the first round, he could win a decision by getting top position and controlling O'Malley, kind of like uh, O'Malley did before, uh, just a couple of fights ago where he went to that tough, gritty decision with the Asian sensation or something his name is. I don't have it in front of me. In any case, I like O'Malley to get the, the early finish, mostly because Vera is a slow starter. I do think Vera has the skills to win this fight, to win a decision from O'Malley by surviving the early storm and then taking over and putting that pressure on late. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, uh, I'm, uh, I'm with O'Malley on this one. Yeah, I think it was against Andre uh, Sukumtoth. That's right. That was it. He is, in fact, the Asian sensation. I probably said his last name wrong. Uh, yeah, I had this. This is my next pick, so you stole it from me. So good job there. Um, I'm going to pick one of the two women's fights uh, for my for my next pick. Oh, boy. They're they're both tough. But I'm going to go first with uh, – I'm going to pick Virna Jenderoba uh, to defeat Felice Herrick, who's coming off of ACL surgery. And um, has had a kind of a mixed UFC career before then. And I think – I just think – I think Jenna Roba is a tough draw, uh, you know, for a first for a first fight back after surgery that serious at her. I mean, I, I think she's probably she's in her mid thirties too, right? At least Felice Herrick. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She so, should be. She's she's been in MMA for a long. Yeah, time. I'm gonna go with the Brazilian Jenna. Jenna, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just let's say the. I'm gonna go with the Brazilian. Yeah, I'm I'm going with Jandaroba in this one as well. To be honest, it could be Herrick's fight, just the way that Jandaroba competed against, you know, in my opinion, the the much better opponent in her UFC debut in Carlos Esparza. Esparza and uh, Herrick are good friends. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some information shared. Both these girls are in their 30s. Um, but Felice Herrig is two inches taller, three inches older. She's got a little bit of a reach advantage. She's number 14 in the world, so this is going to probably put Jenderoba into the rankings. Uh, Herrig training at Extreme Couture in Vegas. I mean, she's a local girl. That's to her advantage. She's got way more UFC experience. Herrig's got a shot here. I'm actually a little bit surprised that the odds are so lopsided in this one. I think they should be closer, but Jenderoba, to be fair, should be the favorite. It's just if you look at Jenderoba's, you know, she's one and one in the UFC, and her one win is over kind of a mediocre fighter, as far as we can tell. So I don't know that she deserves these kinds of odds, but I, I'm there with you. That was going to be either my next pick or the one right after that. My next pick, Nikolai, is going to be a guy that doesn't live very far from either of us, doesn't train far, Nikolai. I'm going to take Mirab Davashvili in his fight Oof. against John Dotson. Wow. I I realize there's some risk here, right? Yeah, there, sure, there sure is. Mirab, yeah. But Mirab is six years younger. He is three inches taller. He's got a two-inch reach advantage. He could never, ever make flyweight while Dotson used to and probably can if he needs to, right? Dotson is a better striker. He's faster. He's got twice the experience, uh, especially UFC experience, right? Marab wins by decision, and Dotson only really loses by decision. Their accuracy and their defense are about the same. Dotson has great takedown defense, but Marab gets nine takedowns average per 15 minutes. That is absolutely the highest in UFC history. There's no one that's been able to do that against high-level competition, especially in this weight division. Um, Dotson's takedown defense is 80%, but I think Marab's 80% takedown offense is good enough to throw around the smaller man. So I like Marab here. Look, Dotson's fast. He could catch him. It's possible. Marab's a tough, gritty like fighter who never loses his gas tank. So I think there's enough reason to be confident in him. And while Dotson could be on a bit of a comeback tour, knocking out all these prospects, he did just come off of a big win over Nathaniel Wood. But I do. I like Marab Devashvili to get another five or six takedowns in this one on his way to a decision. Well, I'm glad you picked this one and not me because I really wasn't sure what to do here. I've been going back and forth. I've always been a big Dotson fan. I also like Devashvili. The fact is Dotson's only really lost to the elite, Demetrius Johnson, twice. John Lineker, Marlon Moraes, Jameer Vera, Peter Jan. And, <clears throat> and if he could deal with Demetrius Johnson's grappling and catch him a couple of times, um, you know, and, and fight really competitive fights, I just, the speed of Dodson, if he's able to, <clears throat> if he's able to be elusive and catch Devashvili coming in, I just think there's a good chance. Here's, here's this is the moment of truth fight for Devashvili. We're going to figure out exactly uh, how good and how elite he is. Um, and I really think this, I really, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think there's a good chance that Dodson's able to catch him. And we don't know how great his chin is because we haven't seen him get drilled by a guy who hits as hard as Dodson, which is very hard. <clears throat> 
still. Uh, and we haven't seen many people really grab, been able to grab a hold of Dodson and hold him down. Like, so I don't know, man. I think if Dodson comes in and, and is good a shape, he w- didn't look in great shape against Peter Yan, and he still fought pretty well in that fight. Um, so if he's, if he, if Dodson comes in in shape, I, I'm kind of leaning towards him, but I won't really know until the weigh-in. I like it. So I'm glad, I like I'm glad, it, you, yeah, picked, look, glad you picked to it. To your me. point, to your point, not only Dodson's speed, but his footwork can prove to be kind of a weird deterrent for Devashvili's consistent takedowns. So I could see that going the other way. I wouldn't be shocked. I just feel like Devashvili's shown that he's incredibly tough and there's no reason to believe that his chin isn't great. Whereas Nathaniel Wood, he's been hurt a couple of times before Dotson. So you can kind of buy into the idea that he might be drilled by Dotson's speed and power. But I do the hear one you, that it's, you It's closer. The one that hurts you stands the one you don't see coming. Yeah, or, or the one landed by, you know, a really heavy-handed striker. That too. Um, so <laughs> What's your next pick, buddy? Oh, boy. It's getting hairy. It's getting hairy in here. Uh, so yes, I'm going to go with... Um, I think uh, Livinia Souza uh, is a superior fighter to Ashley Yoder, and her get, her ghetto jitsu is going to get the job done. Yeah, I am there with you on the pick, but I I, I think it's fairly close. Yoder will have a four inch height advantage, six point five each reach advantage. That is significant. She's older than Souza, thirty six to. 32 to 29, uh, excuse me, which is a little bit surprising. Souza is a BJJ black belt while Yoder is a brow belt. Souza gets more takedowns. She gets like three and a half takedowns per 15 minutes, whereas uh, Yoder only gets about one and change. Souza has a higher takedown percentage, 50% to 38 for Yoder. Souza goes for more submissions. Neither girl is great standing, even though Yoder is much taller. She's slow and slows down even more as the fight continues. Susan's not athletic, but she will have the edge in athleticism in this matchup against the slower, less powerful Yoder. Yoder will have the edge in kicks, and Souza should have the edge in boxing. Souza should have the edge in wrestling, but Yoder is pretty capable there as well. I think the first person to try takedown is probably going to get it in each of these rounds, and that's probably what's going to be a, a big kind of deciding factor. I'm giving the edge to Souza in a competitive decision. Uh, I just thought she fought and beat bigger southpaw jiu-jitsu black belt and Sarah Froda, and this is kind of a similar matchup, except that Yoder doesn't have the skill, speed, or power than, uh, that Froda has standing. So uh, I just think uh, compared to yeah. her last win, this is a little bit of an easier opponent. A better, a better athlete than Froda, but anyway, what's uh, what's your what's your next pick? I, I actually I actually disagree. Oh. I think Froda is a better athlete than, than both these girls. I just think both these girls are like pretty medium in the athletic oh. department. Okay. Uh, Souza could be fighting at 105, and Yoder is so fucking slow and zero power in that girl my next pick this is where it gets really hairy i'm going to take tj brown against danny chavez at uh, in the matchup at featherweight i know brown was not able to make good on his ufc debut he ended up getting caught by a choke after looking pretty good uh, in the early going he's a solid overall fighter right his boxing is solid he's got some power he's got good submissions he's got good wrestling the problem is his chin is not great I mean, it is fragile, and he can get caught by the occasional submission, I suppose, as well. Danny Chavez, I'm not so sure that he has the ability to take advantage of those holes. Chavez, like the level of competition that he's beaten and lost to, shows me that he's not necessarily UFC caliber. Really hard to get any tape on him, so I wasn't able to see him compete, unfortunately. But just looking at the records of his opposition tells me that TJ Brown's going to be more experienced, more crafty, more skilled, and in all likelihood going to be able to pick up either a late stoppage or a decision win. Yep, I uh, this was a tough one to call, but I think, I mean, uh, Chavez has some good striking, but well, you know, but I think he's also a Brown. I think has done it against more proven competition, so we'll we'll see. I hear that. We'll see what happens there. All right, I'm gonna go main event here. I think that Daniel Cormier um, is able to use his wrestling and manage his cardio and uh and get this one done i think in the last fight he got greedy he got a little arrogant he fell in love with his hands and he got tired and when he got tired he he ate some big shots i just think that this the overall skill the legendary wrestling and grappling the speed with his hands the feints just his movement his movement in general I think he should be running. He's just faster and more technical, I think, pretty much everywhere. 
And I think he, <clears throat> Stipe says the first fight was a fluke. I don't think that's the case. I think the second fight, I wouldn't call it a fluke, but he lo- but he won, I think, because Cormier made a mistake. So if Daniel Cormier, and I think he's pissed off enough and has been training hard enough for this fight, I don't think Daniel Cormier makes any mistakes here. Nick, I have watched a lot of tape on this one. And I do think part of the equation is for Daniel Cormier to make little to no mistakes. I don't know that Cormier can take clean shots from Stipe. At this age, at this point in his career, coming off of a knockout loss to the same man, he's been hurt in several of his fights prior to that. Here's the thing. In the first fight, um, it looked like Stipe proved to be the stronger man against the cage he was controlling. He just was able to get underhooks against the elite wrestler. He was able to put his weight on him, if only for a few moments, right? Whereas Cormier was doing really well with that popping jab, Cormier was able to, like, it seemed to me like Stipe was able to pressure him more in that first fight. Whereas in the second fight, Stipe realized, look, I don't want to run into anything. Last time I fought him, it was five months removed from the Angano fight where I took a lot of punishment. This time I'm going to be careful. I'm going to be smarter. And here's what I didn't notice the first time watching their second fight that I noticed this time, Nick, is that Stipe went for body shots throughout the fight. It wasn't just in that last round. It was just in that last round where he started landing that clean left hook. But Stipe landed two to four clean, hard body shots in every round leading up to that. And I think that was a part of the investment that he put in. Another thing about it is that Cormier has short arms, right? And he's not even he's not really able to defend both his body and his head from that left side. It's part of the reason why John Jones was able to land that head kick on him. It's the same reason why Stipe was able to consistently land that body hook because Cormier can only defend either his head or his body. He can't do both. His arms are simply too short and his torso is long enough, right? So I am actually giving the edge to the champion here. I think that given where both these guys are, I know there's talk about the cage being a factor. I'm not sure that's a big factor since when Cormier gets him against the cage, it seemed like Stipe is a stronger man. Cormier was able to get that early takedown in their second fight, right? But I don't know that he can replicate that again and again. If you look at his record overall, unless he's fighting a much smaller man at 205 pounds, and I mean like a Daniel Cormier smaller man, uh, an Anderson Silva smaller man, he never gets many takedowns, especially in a five-rounder. I don't think he has the gas tank to, Nick. Not at 240, 250 pounds can Cormier consistently get takedowns. Um, And even if he does get takedowns in the first two fights, in that third, fourth, fifth round, Stipe is still going to have the gas tank. He's still going to have serious, serious power, and Cormier will have to remain perfect. So I like Stipe, man. It might look rough for him early. It's possible. But I like him to get the knockout here sooner or later. He knows he can go to the body. He knows that's an area where he can always focus on, right? But on top of that now, because DC will have those body shots in mind, DC might have his hands low. He might have to, which means he's probably going to take a few more headshots. And you don't want to take any kind of shots from Stipe Miocic. He's a dense, powerful monster of a heavyweight who probably will never make 205 pounds unless he completely changes his life. So I like the champ here to come back. I know that there's an easy argument to be made that DC won the majority of uh, the the rounds that they've competed against each other. But I like the champ because I think in five rounds he could find that finish. He's more likely to. It's possible that DC can catch him, but I'm not betting on it. I think DC's in shape. He's not weighing 260 pounds. He's probably going to weigh about 237 pounds on the scale leading up to the fight in this one, which will take away some of that power. And he's going to have that speed, but man, he's going to slow down. And I think Miocic is going to take advantage of it in the late rounds. We shall see. It's very exciting. Yes, sir. It really, it really is. Very much looking forward to that one. We've got only two picks left, Nick. One pick for me and then the tiebreaker for you. My final pick, I'm going to take Parker Porker, Parker Porter to beat Chris Dukas. Ah. Both these guys are actually pretty good heavyweights. Uh, surprising skill. Surprising conditioning. Like Chris Dukas you know, seems to hurt just about everybody he fights. Parker Porter, like he can be in the third or fourth round, even though he's 35 years old. He's still throwing like like what looks to me like 20 shots per minute. He's just like consistently throwing for a big, uh, out-of-shape-looking heavyweight. So I like Parker Porter here to possibly survive an early storm from Chris Dukas and uh, look good late, even though, you know, both are making their UFC debut and it could go either way. Yeah, Porter, what, is your, uh, um, what is your official prediction? I, yeah. I'm siding slightly towards uh, Dukas here just because I think that Parter's, Parker's game is less, is less well-rounded. Um, it's kind of a, you know, throw some kicks, fire that overhand right um, kind of guy. But he may land. What's interesting mm-hmm. is when you look at his resume, he's got losses to both uh, Gabriel Gun- uh, Gonzaga 
and also John Jones. He was John Jones's second professional fight, which fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, long many many moons ago. Um, he's also been fighting like forever. I think Brown started in the amateurs around like 2013. I think that Porter was fighting professionally as early as like 2010, maybe um, wow. 2009. He's been around. He's been around the block. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was I was slightly leaning towards Dawkins, but this is probably gonna this, that was gonna be my last pick. Um, so I guess the tiebreaker is this wild. I can't believe this isn't the co-main event. Um, but we've got a a heavyweight fight against Jarzinho Rosenstrike against Junior Dos Santos. <sighs> really tricky one to call for me. You've got uh, you know Rosenstrike who's. It, it comes down to a, a couple of things. Like, Rosenstrike's chin seems really, really good unless you're fighting Francis Ngannou, which is the yep. case for everybody. Um, so I don't think he's chinny. I think he can take some shots from from JDS, who isn't exact, doesn't seem to, like, KO guys with one punch the way that he used to. Anyway, I think Rosenstrike's going to have better, you know, better kickboxing, probably faster hands probably be able to keep the keep the distance i think the fight can get ugly for him if jds turns it into a dirty boxing fight up against the cage um but i i just think that rosen strikes is just quicker and has i mean he's got i guess he's got kickboxing miles so it's hard to say fewer that he's got fewer miles um but jds is the more well-rounded mixed martial artist and if he turns this into like a a, a you know a clinch like up against the cage fight and Rosenstrike can't get free and loose. Like, yeah, JDS could maybe win, you know, win an ugly decision. But I, I have a feeling that Rosenstrike's going to find that JDS chin, which post Cain Velasquez losses is not, it's just not, it's just not what it used to be. Um, so yeah. I'm going to pick tentatively, I'm going to pick Rosenstrike because um, he seems like he's in all his other, he, he's got incredible power. He's going to find a way to win. He doesn't necessarily have to hit you cleanly, but as, as, as somebody wrote or I heard, he is someone who got taken down on the regular by Junior Albini. So it's did. like, is JDS going to go onto a pay-per-view card and be like, yep, it's time for me to shoot? I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to... I think this. I think this fight is lar- hopefully largely happens on the feet, and I think that that it comes down to this: Rosenstrike can take more shots from JDS than JDS can take from Rosenstrike. Yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from. I ended up siding very slightly with JDS. They're about the same size. Both train at American Top Team, which probably means Rosenstrike didn't get to come into Florida for this one. It also means that the guys in American Top Team probably know Rosenstrike's strengths and weaknesses more than the average person who's watched him compete, right? Their common opponents are Francis Ngannou and Alistair Overeem. Uh, L- JDS was, has almost three times the MMA experience, but Rosenstrike has a 76-6 and six kickboxing record. Look, the fact is that JDS actually lands more per minute. He takes less per minute. Um, he's got about the same accuracy. He does go for the occasional takedown, and that's kind of partially what I'm betting on. Because of JDS's output, uh, the fact that Rosenstrike, uh, you know, he tends to kind of fall back. He waits for the clean shots in many, many cases and has a few moments of explosiveness. Uh, the ATT factor, the fact that JDS only loses to the very, very elite. I'm picking JDS, but I could easily, easily see him getting caught. Like, JDS against Nganu, he came in there not re- not wanting to win. He realized that as soon as he takes a shot, he's just going to give in and let the fight be over. If he has that kind of mindset, he's going to lose this fight. But I'm hoping that he's uh, a lot more confident in this matchup, and uh, I'm going with JDS. But easily, easily, I'm going to get this wrong. This one could easily go either way. I, as the champion, I can say I don't. I, <laughs> I if I end up if I end up 500 on this card, I or lower, I will not be surprised. There's. Uh, yeah, I would yeah. not accept that, Nick. Um, Unacceptable. What's that? Unacceptable. Well, Nick. we'll uh, see. Five hundred is just not an option we'll see. for us. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's a, it's a very interesting card. 
Yes, sir. I'm quickly going to go through our picks. Uh, your first pick was Magomed Ankalaev. Second, you took Jim Miller. Third, you had Jin, uh, Virna Janjiroba. Your fourth pick was Leva Renata Souza. Your fifth pick was Daniel Cormier. And then the tiebreaker, if we are tied on all the other picks, you chose Jarzinho Rosenstruck to beat JDS. My first pick was Herbert Burns. Second, Sean O'Malley. Third, Mirab Devashvili. Fourth, TJ Brown. Fifth, Parker Porter, and and again, we, we're going to go back to that tiebreaker if it matters. Nikolai, you've got to go. We're going to take a break. I'm going to come back and give these guys the betting guide before we call it a day. Nikolai, uh, I don't know if you're the champion because I think you got to get ahead of me in the total tally, but you're certainly winning a couple of rounds here in the middle of the cha- in the middle of the championship bout, and uh, it's definitely giving me a run for my money and my fatigue. Body shot. Can I come back? Body Do I have shot. that Chris Weidman takedown in me now? Body shot. Oh, I don't know. You're going for a body shot, or you're taking a body shot? Because I prefer it if you uh, take I'm one. going. I'm, I'm, I'm going to the body. I don't like it one bit, but I do appreciate you giving me the heads up, buddy. Uh, enjoy your week. Looking forward to getting my just, win back, Nick. It's time to get my you mojo just reminded back. me what a body shot feels like. And I'm sure that our dozens and dozens of listeners, some of them have sparred before, or like you perhaps been in you know, real, uh, real competitive uh, fights at the professional level. But, man, perhaps I have. when you... If you're a little soft in the middle and you get hit and you can feel your organs bump into each other, the pain, <laughs> the very, very specific sharp pain that it creates when they when they connect and how it all wants to blow out your ass is uh, it's a really special feeling. Nick, I'm going to give you that special feeling. The next time that we see each other, I'm going <laughs> straight for the liver. <laughs> all right. You get to choose which body part I throw. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to block it effectively and counter I'm just saying I'm going to try. You can't hurt my liver. It's pickled at this point. All right. I'll talk to you later, Sam. <laughs> Hasta la pasta. Have a, have a great week, buddy. Back on the podcast for the MMA Geeks betting guide. I do quickly want to point you guys back to our YouTube channel, the MMA Geek Sea Level Podcast YouTube channel. I made a really detailed breakdown video of the Miocic versus Cormier fight. There's a bunch of footage in there. There's stats. I think it's definitely worth checking out. If you guys have a minute, do check that out. Hit that like button and uh, consider subscribing. Last week wasn't the best week for me. Omari Akhmedov did not come through. He gave up that takedown in the third round against Chris Weidman. Zalal came through for me, but Terman did not. Beno Dariush came through with flying colors, but Alexei Oyanik unfortunately did not. My recommendations for this week are a parlay of Stipe Miocic and Herbert Burns. $50 to win 90 to bucks. I think they're really good odds for that sort of bet. And I'm hoping that Stipe Miocic comes through for me. All the research I've done leads me to believe that he has a really good chance of winning this fight. And I think there's a betting opportunity there. Virna Janjiroba and Lavinia Souza, the two Brazilian women fighting on the card. $62 to win 76 on those two in a parlay. Also, I recommend a couple of bets on that miller Pichel fight. Miller by round one finish is plus 500. The guy always, when he wins, wins in the first round. So on top of the fact that Pichel's a slow starter, I like those odds. 10 bucks to win 50 on Miller in the first round. And then we have Pichel by decision. I don't like Pichel's chances of be, of finishing Miller. I can certainly see him bullying Miller in the second and third rounds. Plus 185 and $11 to win 10. So the idea is very simple. If Pichel wins by decision, I even out. If Miller wins in the first round like I expect him to, I'm up 50. Worst case, I lost $21, not the worst situation to be in. And then I recommend a bet on Chavez by finish at plus 300. He's fighting TJ Brown, and TJ Brown has a really, really fragile chin, and Chavez hits pretty hard. He's got a bunch of knockouts recently. I think that's certainly worth 15 bucks to win 45 Also, O'Malley in round one, plus 325. to win 50. These are the best odds you can get by O'Malley by early finish, and I like these odds. Uh, Here's the thing. He's fighting a really, really tough guy who won't necessarily just give in, right? But Marlon Vera is not a quick starter. He has trouble with really fast guys with longer reach, at least early on. And even though I can see Vera really picking it up in that third round, I expect that Sean O'Malley will look really, really good in the first one. I expect there's a chance he might win at that point. So $15 to win 50 on O'Malley in the first round. That's going to do it for my betting guide. I'm quickly going to give you guys what we have, at least as of right now, for next week's card in the Pedro Munoz versus Frankie Edgar fight card coming up. The weekend after this one, we have uh, Yal Romero and Uriah Hall 
as I assume the co-main event, that's a phenomenal fight, and that should be interesting as heck. How much does Yoel Romero have left? And Uriah Hall has been looking the best he has in a long, long time, and he might just be at a point where he's ready for this kind of matchup against a 40-something-year-old Yoel Romero. And then Pedro Munoz, Frankie Edgar as the main event. I mean, no complaints about that one. Fantastic main event for Frankie Edgar to make his bantamweight debut. Pedro Munoz, an established guy at that weight class, and Frankie Edgar, an established guy, one weight class up. And then we have Daniel Rodriguez versus Takashi Sato. That should be interesting. Rodriguez is the guy who was able to beat Tim Means by knockout in his UFC debut. And Takashi Sato is now 2-1 in the UFC, both of his wins by knockout. So that should be interesting coming up for next week. Nick and I will preview it for you guys. In the meantime, enjoy UFC 252. This one will be exciting. Thank you for listening once again. Looking forward to beating Nick this week. I freaking need the win. Cannot let this kid streak on me. Unacceptable. See you guys next week.